So you just see there in the title, uh, a thought about rest. Um, and these are basically thoughts, we're probably going to stick with mostly Hebrews, but if I have time, if we have time, we'll maybe try and jump into Psalms. Um, Um, so yeah, just looking at a thought, um, recently, so just about every Sabbath, um, for a while now, um, myself, my father-in-law and my, uh, my wife's uncle, who's recently just sort of come into Christianity, um, have been just going through the New Testament. So we've just been reading a letter right through at every meeting sort of thing, and then we'll just chat about it. Um, and just see what what popped up for us. And recently, uh, last week we finished reading through Hebrews. Um, and I've got to say, it's a thank you. It's a remarkable book. Um, yeah, that works. Um, it's a remarkable book. I think how it's written, um, the thoughts that it's trying to to get across. Um, I guess how it exalts Jesus. And that's a big emphasis in the book or in the letter, but um, I guess how it connects it all. And this topic about rest, when it talks about rest in Hebrews, it's an interesting topic. And it's a, it's a theme that um, often like a lot of Adventists will sort of dwell upon because you know, there's a link between what it's saying and then the Sabbath or creation in Genesis. Um, but I guess for me, I'm just trying to, when I was going through it, I'm just trying to understand it for myself. So I'm going to share that with you. <laughs> and hopefully we all might understand a bit more by the end of this morning. Um, basically trying to understand, okay, what is it, when God or when the author here is saying enter into rest, what, what is being said? What is the rest? What is preventing us from entering into rest? Um, and yeah, what does that look like today for us? So we're going to read a few chapters uh, in Hebrews, so I'll have it here. Um, but I would encourage, if you've got a Bible or, in your, or using your phone, probably read it through it there. It might be just as beneficial or more, whatever's going to be best for you. So we'll read from, uh, we could do Hebrews chapter 4. That's good. That's big enough. I think you can see it. Um, I might read it from here because I can't see. <laughs> All right. So maybe put this way. So we are bound to worry that some of you might seem to have missed out on God's promise of entering His rest, the promise which is still open before us. For we certainly had the good news announced to us, just as they did. But the word which they heard didn't do them any good, because they were not united in faith with those who heard it. For it is we who believe who enter into the rest, as it has, it, sorry, as it has been said, as I swore in my anger, they will never enter my rest. Even though God's works had been complete since the foundation of the world, 
For it says this somewhere about the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the present passage, they're going to work. Uh, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since some failed to enter into it, and those who received the good news earlier on didn't because of unbelief, he once again appoints a day today, saying through David, after such a long interval of time, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. If Joshua had given them rest, he wouldn't be speaking about another subsequent rest. Thus we conclude, there is still a future Sabbath rest for God's people. Anyone who enters that rest will take a rest from their works as God did from his. So it's an interesting, interesting thoughts that are going there. Sorry. Um, I guess like for me, you look at it and you think, okay, so... W- what is it talking about? And when you look, when you read through Hebrews, there's always a, there's a comparison almost in every section as you go throughout the whole thing. So, and it's always comparing Jesus to something. So, uh, Jesus is um, more than angels, and then Jesus is more or better than Moses, and then uh, his covenant is better than the old covenant, and uh, Mount Zion is better than Jerusalem. And there's always these comparisons. Um, throughout the whole throughout the whole letter, and sort of so that's where this is kind of playing at now. It's it's looking at a rest, and it's trying to say that the old, and I guess when it's doing those comparisons, it's the it's trying the author's trying to convince us that everything that we have today, the old was looking forward to. It was longing for what we have now, and he's saying that because the. The audience of the Hebrews that he's writing to, they were in danger of slipping back into old rituals and not continuing in the movement that Jesus had begun and with his apostles. They were going to slip back into old ways. And not so much for salvation because they thought that would save them. I don't think it was for that. I think they were slipping back into becoming more like what the Jews were doing because they were scared of persecution. They were trying to, I guess, save their lives or um, save trouble at least, you know, in the in the in the least sort of sense. So, so they were scared, and he's he's writing to them, and he's he's thinking about Israel. So he goes through Israel, he picks up that story, um, and you know, and you hear this this thing that you know they they couldn't enter a rest into the rest that God had provided or was willing to give them because of unbelief. So um, I guess my questions was, uh, or were, what is the unbelief that prevented people from entering into rest? Uh, and what is it that we are to believe in order to enter into rest? Um, because I think sometimes it's easy, it's too easy just to say believe and, and then you can enter into rest. Like, but what does that even mean? What does it even mean to believe? Um, what does it mean to not believe? What does that even mean? So let's go back. So we read chapter 4. Let's go back to chapter 2 in Hebrews. And um, we'll read that chapter. 
and let's... Um, basically, I'm trying to take us through a journey. So let's just read through it, a few chapters, and we'll try and, um, try and understand it a bit more. All right, so Hebrews 2. So then we must pay... So sorry, so then we must pay all the closer attention to what we heard in case we drift away from it. You see, if the word which was spoken through angels was reliable with appropriate and sorry, was reliable with appropriate and just punishment every time anyone broke it or disobeyed it, how shall we escape if we ignore a rescue as great as this? It started by being declared through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God bore witness as well, along with them, in signs and wonders and many different types of powerful deeds, and by the Holy Spirit, distributed in accordance with his will. So if I just pause there for a second. <clears throat> like he's, he's trying to call attention to something, and he's... And he's basically trying to emphasise quickly that um, the good news was spoken in the Old Testament just as much as it is spoken to us. Now, obviously, now think of Israel, right? So think of you're, you're a slave in Egypt and someone comes along and says, God, Yahweh is going to deliver you. Get ready, pack your bags, you're getting out tonight. So that's good news, right? There's going to be deliverance that's about to occur. And that's what he's comparing that good news was spoken to them as it, is, as it was spoken to them or even to us, right? And just as they saw great signs and wonders, God delivering them from Egypt with plagues and everything that happened there, uh, as well, in their time, God had demonstrated signs and wonders through Jesus and through the apostles. Right, so there was these, there was evidence of powerful deeds of the Holy Spirit, and so He's saying basically, be careful, be careful to heed what you've heard, right? Lest you do the same thing as them. Okay, so verse five. So you see, God didn't place the world to come, which is what I'm writing about, under the control of angels. Someone has spoken of it somewhere in these terms. What are humans that you should remember them? What is the Son of Man that you should take thought for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour, and you placed everything under his feet. When it speaks of everything being subjected to him, it leaves nothing that is not subjected to him. As things are at present, we don't see everything subjected to him. What we do see is the one who was, for a little while, made lower than the angels, that is Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by God's grace he might taste death on behalf of everyone." This is how it works out. Everything exists for the sake of God and because of him and it was, sorry and because of him it was appropriate that in bringing many children to glory he should make perfect 
through suffering, the one who leads the way to salvation. For the one who makes others holy and the ones who are made holy all belong to a single family. This is why he isn't ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. When he says, I will announce your name to my brothers and sisters, I will sing your praise in the middle of the assembly, and again, I will place my trust in him. And again, look, here I am with the children God has given me. Since the children share in blood and flesh, he too shared in them in just the same way, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and set free the people who were all their lives so who all their lives long were under the power of slavery because of the fear of death. It's obvious, you see, that he isn't taking special thought for angels. He's taking special thought for Abraham's family. That's why he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he might become a merciful and trustworthy high priest in God's presence, to make atonement for the sins of the people. He himself has suffered, you see, through being put to the test, and that's why he is able to help those who are being tested right now. It's nice when you read the whole thing and you, you, you get context and you can, you can see logic as, as, you know, at least the logic of the author going through. And I guess my way of, of understanding what's being said here is that the exalted Jesus, who is equal to God, became a human, Right? The scriptures declared that God has been mindful of humans, us, despite us being made lower than the angels. And when you read, I mean, he's quoting uh, Psalm, I think it's chapter 8, I'm pretty sure he's quoting, um, that he's crowned men, humans with uh, honour and glory. And he's placed everything under their feet. And you look at the author and he's saying, this is what God has done. This is what he's, what he's promised. What he's, um, yeah, this is how he sees what the world will become or be. But the problem is that not, everything's not placed under our feet yet. We're not in control. We're still subjected to death, to pain, to suffering. But he continues in his thought and he says, but what we do see is Jesus being crowned, him being crowned with glory and honour. But it's funny because he's crowned with glory and honour as a result of suffering. Now really, you think about that. I mean, you think, how can someone be crowned with glory and honour for suffering? Like, how does that make sense, right? Usually people are crowned with glory and honour for Something else, you know, not usually for suffering. <laughs> unless maybe, unless maybe, you know, someone is crowned, someone's given a medal of honour for uh, saving a life, you know. In those times, I guess, people are crowned, aren't they? They're, medal, they're, they're rewarded. And it continues, right? So he's crowned with glory and honour as a result of suffering because that suffering uh, meant that he tasted death on behalf of everyone. And then what does that mean? 
And this is the thing, right? The, the, the thought continues in that chapter. When he became us, so bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, everything that he achieved, we have achieved. So you got to see when you got to see the thought when he's when he's writing here, he's trying to convince us that when the Messiah comes as as a human, he binds everyone who believes in with himself. He encircles them all so that whatever has been accomplished in him is accomplished in all. If he suffered and died, you will also suffer. Like if he suffered, you will suffer. If he was tested, you also will be tested. If he died, you too will die. If he resurrected, you too will gain life. Our whole being is bound up with his. And this is, I mean, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. But the, the interesting thing is, is that, um, I guess, like I mentioned before, like with... With the audience there, they're trying to retreat from their tests. And so this is why he's trying to, throughout the book, if you read the whole book, you'll see that, that he, and even when you read Peter and other, other apostles, they talk about suffering and, and, making, and increasing our patience and uh, why we should uh, not be surprised with suffering. Um, and I think what this author is trying to do is he's trying to make it very clear that everything that we experience in this life, if we believe... We are bound with his, with his life. It will not be for nothing. Whatever you go through in life will be for something. It will mean something. It has currency. You know, and the way, the way of Jesus is a remarkable phenomenon. Because on the one hand, when we follow the way of Jesus... It brings peace. Um, you know, it provides a better way of being for us. It provides wholeness, completeness, and makes it gives us right perspective of the world, of events. Um, it makes ours, our our li- own lives, and then anyone in our circle of influence uh, flourish. It's a wonderful thing. But on the other hand. The way of Jesus can also attract challenges and negative attention and resistance and jealousy and hatred and oppression. It's paradoxical. It, it, and so it's no wonder that the apostles spent so much time and energy in trying to encourage the church. They were always constantly trying to encourage the church because that's the paradox. And then, you know, and I guess what he's trying to make clear is the one who can receive, not everyone who's born in this world can receive the achievement of what Jesus has accomplished. That's what, and that's what he's trying to, but he wants us, or he wants the church that he's writing to, and us today, to receive the accomplishment. But only, the ones who can receive the accomplishment are the ones who, as it was written in there, the ones who place their trust in him. All right, so let's go. Let's read um, chapter 3. Well then, my brothers and sisters, you are God's holy ones, and you share the call from heaven. 
So think carefully about Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession of faith. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. He deserves much more glory than Moses, just as the one who builds a house deserves more glory than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the one who builds all things is God. And Moses was faithful as a servant in all his house, thereby bearing witness to the things that were yet to be spoken of. But the Messiah is over God's house as a son. What is that house? It's us, those of us who hold on tightly to the free delight and confidence of our hope. So you see this thing, right? The ones who are going to receive the blessing, the benefits of what he's accomplished, are the ones who, I guess the ones who have allowed Jesus to be that son over the house, right? The ones who hold tightly and unconfidently to the hope. So listen to what the Holy Spirit says. Today, if you hear his voice... Don't harden your hearts, as in the great bitterness, like the day in the desert when they faced the test, when your fathers put me to the test and challenged me, and saw my works for forty years. Sorry, and saw my works for forty years, and so I was angry with that generation and said, "They are always straying in their hearts; they do not know my ways." As I swore in my anger, they'll never enter my rest. Take care, my dear family, that none of you should possess an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to withdraw from the living God. But encourage one, one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We share the life of the Messiah only if we keep a firm, tight grip on our original confidence right through to the end. That's what it means when it says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't make your hearts hard, as in the great bitterness. Who was it, after all, who heard and then became bitter? It was all those who went out of Egypt under Moses, wasn't it? And who was it that God was angry with for 40 years? It was those who, who sinned, sorry, it was those who sinned, wasn't it? Those whose bodies fell in the desert. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who didn't believe? So we can see that it was their unbelief that prevented them from entering. So, you know, I guess looking at that story, and you see the comparison, you see how he's trying to convince you know, and I, when I was reading it and thinking about what's, what is the, the evil and unbelieving heart, what is it that prevents them or prevented them or prevents us from entering into this rest? Because I guess keep it in the back of your mind that when we talk about rest, and if, if this is connected to the Sabbath rest, this will, or I guess, ought to or should, um, I guess, inform the way we keep Sabbath or the way we keep this day. That it's not just a day that was given, but there's more to it. There's something that it represents, that we, we are ourselves joining into. So, what's the evil and unbelieving heart? And if you think about it, 
So Israel, they see, they hear the good news that God's going to deliver them. They see his mighty acts. He delivers them out of Egypt and he promises them that he's going to take them to a land where they're going to rest. They're going to rest from all their enemies. But on the journey to that land of rest, they're tested. So at times there's no food, and at other times there's no water. But the time that this verse or this passage is referring to is when, when they're in a place called Kadesh and they rebel because of a report provided by 10 of the 12 spies who spied on the, good, on the promised land. And the 10 spies said that they can't enter it. There's giants there and we can't go. We have no chance. And so that was the unbelieving heart. That it was the heart that said that God is not able to get me into that land. It's the heart that said it's impossible for him to keep his promise. It's the heart that says he won't do what he said he will do. Right, that's the evil and unbelieving heart that this, this, these passage is talking about. And I guess for me, I guess when you think about that in our context, because there's, there's principles here that transcend time. And I think for us, we're also looking forward to a day, right? This is what Hebrews tries to continually get at. And then when you, especially when you continue reading through, say, Hebrews 11 is known for being a chapter of faith and having all these records of people who have great faith. And it's, it's got it there for a reason. It's because despite what happened around them, they looked forward and they trusted. They looked forward to a better to the promise that God was, uh, promised them they, and they trusted that he would be able to come through, that he was who indeed he said he was. And I think for us sometimes, uh, I know, I mean, Christianity varies in its thoughts. Um, and I guess some of us can sometimes not worry enough of what's going on. And I think sometimes some uh, parts of Christianity can uh, worry too much, where sometimes there's a, a focus that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, right, really quickly. Um, but I don't think that, that that's what we're meant to be, I think, in either case. I think in either case, or I think the middle way is the best way, which is that despite the suffering that I go through, despite the hardship that I go through, it's here for a reason. And, I'm, and I need to learn patience. And if, if the Messiah lived his life suffered, died, why should I expect any different? And that's what the authors are trying to get at. And it doesn't mean that your life has to be miserable. It's not the point. Um, Our life doesn't have to be miserable despite that. But actually, the contrary, you can actually find ultimate peace in in that. (laughs) So let me just go jump to Hebrews 10. 
says, But remember the earlier times when you were first enlightened, you went through great struggles and suffering. So he's, talking, so he's going back to the church. He's saying, remember what you went through. Right? When you were first enlightened, when the good news came to you, you were excited. And you went through great struggles and suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public reproach and physical abuse. Sometimes you stood alongside people who were being treated in that way. You even shared the suffering of those who were imprisoned. When people looted your property, you actually welcomed it joyfully because you knew that you had a better possession, a lasting one. So don't throw away your confidence. It carries a great reward. What you need is patience. Then, when you've done what God wants, you will receive the promise. For in just a little while from now, the coming one will come and won't delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he hesitates, my soul will not delight in him. We are not among the hesitators who are destroyed. We are people of faith and our lives will be kept safe. They're beautiful words, like honestly, like, you know, they're very encouraging. And I think it's always best to try and place yourself in their shoes, um, especially as you're reading, so that's not so distant. But there's this better possession, and, and what's... I think what's interesting, you know, when, when we mention about, like, what's the unbelieving heart? It's the one who doesn't, who doesn't believe that God will come through and deliver on what he said he's going to deliver. And we can be tempted to the same thing, you know. We can, we can go on in our life today thinking and living in a way that presumes or assumes that God is not going to do what he promises or has promised he's going to do. And I would say that what happens is, like, just like Israel they heard the good news, they rejected, and then they slipped back into Egypt. They desired to go back there. They wanted to slip into the old way of, of being. The new way was too scary and too difficult. Um, and I think the authors here are trying to encourage us, the apostles are trying to encourage us that it's not scary. Jesus has marked out the way, he's carved out that way for us already, before us. So when we talk about faith, you know, like you got Hebrews 11, usually it's 11.1, that's always quoted as, as the definition of faith. But I think, I think this verse probably says it just as well, um, that without faith it's impossible to please God. For those who come to worship God must believe that he really does exist and that he rewards those who seek him. And I think that, sum, like that really sums it up. What the author, what we've, those few chapters that we've been getting to, I mean, that's, this sums it up. That those who worship God believe that he is and they believe that he rewards those who seek him. There's an enduring faith and there's an enduring patience in this life. Now, let me just jump to going in Hebrews, because when it talks about, I guess, uh, you know, those who worship God, I think this is fascinating. I don't have it up here on the screen, so you'll have to just jump on your phones or on your Bibles. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Hebrews 10, verse 19. 
We'll read to um, verse 25. It talks about worship and what that looks like. And here we go again, right? So, so then, my brothers and sisters, we have boldness to go into the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated a brand new living path through the curtain, that is his earthly body. We have a high priest who is over God's house. Let us therefore come to worship with a true heart in complete assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So all the old rituals now have their, their fulfillment in Jesus, right? We are the ones that are being cleansed, right? The purification laws were meant for us, right? There's a better covenant. And then verse 23, Let us hold on tightly to our confession of hope without being diverted. Now I think that's a really key thought, you know. Hold on to your faith, to your belief, without being diverted. Because what we believe comes out in how we behave so if we if we believe that it was let me say if we don't believe that god is who he says he is then we act in a different way our lives are completely changed with that belief if we believe that god's kingdom has arrived was inaugurated by jesus that he has provided a new and living way of, for humans to live, us, then that transforms what you do today and this afternoon and tomorrow. You've all of a sudden got some context and some, I guess, compass in your life to direct you. But when you don't have that, when you don't believe, if we don't believe who God is, or we don't believe that he rewards those who seek him, or that there's a better way or another way of being, then we divert. We divert and we go back to Egypt. We go back to old ways. So let's continue. So the one... Whoop, sorry. Oh, no, that's it. I don't have it there. <laughs> I forgot. Um, so verse 23, halfway. The one who announced the message to us is trustworthy, right? One to be trusted. Let us as well stir up one another's minds to energetic effort in love and good works. And you see how it, for me it's amazing, this emphasis is switched that what you believe, if you believe that God rewards those who, who seek him, then you will... I guess you will be energised or energise each other to love and good works. That means the way you behave today. It modifies. All of a sudden you've got meaning, you've got context. That the life that you're living now has, has meaning. There's something for you to do. And just going down to uh, chapter 12. So chapter 12, verse 25. And then even chapter 13, I probably won't read it all, but even 13 talks about the practical life of God's people. And you see how it transitions. Because what we believe determines how we behave. So verse 25 of uh, chapter 12 says, Take care that you don't refuse the one who is speaking. 
For if people didn't escape when they rejected the one who gave them earthly warnings, how much more if we turn away from the one who speaks from heaven? At that point, his voice shook the earth, but now he has issued a promise in the following words, One more time I will shake not only the earth, but heaven as well. The phrase, one more time, shows that the things that are to be shaken, that is, the created things, will be taken away, so that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Well, we are, well, then we are to receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. This calls for gratitude. That's how to offer God true and acceptable worship reverently and with fear. Our God, you see, is a devouring fire. And then it goes into that practical thing of, I guess, um, families taking care of each other, being hospitable, marriages, keeping life free from love of money and, and, and etc. So you see this context. And I think for me, you know, I guess going back into, okay, so what's the rest? The rest that we are to enter, to enter into as a result of our faith in the Messiah. I think the rest is that despite where we are and despite what happens to me in, in life, I have everything in the Messiah. I have everything. There's a kingdom to come, but the kingdom has come as well. The kingdom is and will be. And I live for that kingdom now no matter what happens to me. And anything that I suffer as a result of that is meaningless in comparison. So, you know, when we think of the Sabbath, I guess, um, this is what we're getting at. <laughs> we're getting in this, this frame of mind, this frame of, uh, this way of being, that the Sabbath represents this way of life. It's not just a day. It's, I don't know, I don't know what you call it. It's it's something above it. It transcends just a day. It transcends just 24 hours. It's it's a way of being. It's a way of being. And, um, And that when I believe that God is who he says he is, and I believe that he will do what he says he's going to do, that he is the just, he's the, that he is the, uh, a just God, that he will take vengeance on all the evil that occurs in this world in due time. But in the meantime, I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to help the brokenhearted. I'm going to give a word in season. And I'm going to share in the glory and honour of the Messiah. I'll do that right now. And I think when we can do that, then we enter into rest. And all of a sudden then rest is not just a 24-hour period. All of a sudden rest becomes a 24-7 experience. And so um, let's enter it. Let's try and enter into rest. Amen.